Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Canada's men's national soccer team has qualified for the FIFA World Cup for the first time since 1986. Despite some international success in the 1980s, our men's program has struggled for many years before they managed to turn things around to reach the biggest tournament in the sport. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Post-media national soccer writer Derek Van Deest joins me to discuss why our national program stalled for so many years how we managed to turn things around, and what our chances are at this year's World Cup. Don't forget you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Derek, there's been a lot of talk in Canada about the fact that Canada's men's national team, after... A lot of anticipation, a lot of interest has finally qualified for the FIFA World Cup in 2022 in Qatar. For those who don't necessarily follow soccer, how big a deal is it that Canada has actually qualified for the World Cup? Well, this is actually a huge deal. They haven't been at the World Cup since their only appearance in 1986. And the World Cup of Soccer is is obviously one of the biggest, if not maybe the biggest sporting event out there. It's obviously comparable up there with the Olympics. but the World Cup of Soccer is more widely viewed than the Olympics are in a sense that there's more people watching one event or one game than there would be at an at Olympics, maybe except for kind of a, a hockey gold medal final or, or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a massive, massive event. It's watched by billions worldwide and people are glued to, to this event. So to, for Canada to be part of it, there's only 32 teams that qualify for the World Cup and almost 200 start in qualifying. So, so to, to be part of that is a huge deal, not just for the country, but also for the program and the federation, because they kind of get dipped into that FIFA money that helps kind of build the program. So Canada has been, the men's team anyway, has been wallowing just in obscurity for 30 plus years, trying to get back to the World Cup. When they got there in 86, they thought this was going to be the beginning of constant participation in World Cups, and they never got back there. And to be honest, they never got close to getting back there. They would have trouble getting out of their preliminary qualifying group to get to the final qualifying group they hadn't been in the final qualifying group for about uh, 25 years so to get there is is a massive massive deal and particularly the way they did it they did it by winning CONCACAF which is usually dominated by Mexico and the United States and they were able to top the group above Mexico and above the United States and so that was impressive in itself but to, to get there with this team I think it's it's just a massive massive deal and once they're at the World Cup, it's going to be a huge sporting event for Canada. And I think it's going to rally the country. And we've seen it in the United States when people rally around their team when they're playing. And I think we're going to see it here in Canada. I think time's going to stop here for a couple hours when Canada's playing some of those games in Qatar. You mentioned the arduous qualifying process. And this is something that I think, you know, maybe casual soccer fans may have a uh, some understanding of. Hardcore soccer fans obviously know 
Canada had to go through a qualifying round in CONCACAF, then they have to go to a playoff round. If they didn't fare well, they'd have to go to another playoff round against like Australia area teams. Like what is the process for Canada to get to the World Cup? Well, that's the thing. It was, it was such an arduous process. And first off, they started with, they changed the qualification process for CONCACAF. And basically, CONCACAF makes all its money from the United States and Mexico. So what happened was four years ago, the United States didn't qualify for Russia 2018. And it was a huge hit for CONCACAF to not have the United States there. Because it's just basically, they lost a huge audience at the World Cup. So what CONCACAF decided to do is they decided to streamline the qualifying process for the United States and for Mexico, just to kind of ensure those teams got there. So what they did is they took six teams. The, the final grouping is always six teams. And, and they basically they said, okay, we're going to take six teams and put them in the final grouping based on rankings. And then the other teams are going to play in another kind of tournament at the same time to play for basically what they call a play-in spot for the World Cup. So CONCACAF, the region is given three qualifying spots automatically and then there's a playoff between the CONCACAF team and a team from another region for what they call a half spot so what they do is they, they play off for an extra spot in the tournament originally Canada was left out of the original six that, that grouping and the only way they could get into the tournament into the World Cup basically was go through the back door and beat all these small Caribbean countries and then they'll, they'd get an opportunity to play in that continental playoff that's what originally they were playing for and it was a very contentious situation because it was based on points and rankings. And a lot of people weren't sure what rankings, what points. And it was a really convoluted system. The pandemic, fortunately for Canada, forced CONCACAF to change the entire qualifying structure. And, and instead of the, the ranking the 16th and saying, okay, you guys qualify for the World Cup, they forced everyone in a pool. And they said, okay, we're going to keep those six teams. But then we're going to give two extra spots in the final grouping and the rest of the federation of the conference is going to play for those two groupings. And Canada was kind of on the outside looking in. So, yeah, so they had to play. Uh, their qualifying process was 20 games, which is the most of any team in the world that got to Qatar. So they had to play kind of a round robin with three other teams just to get into a playoff with Haiti, just to get into the final qualifying group. So they had already played, I think it was six or seven games before even getting into the final qualifying group. And then, and then so it was an arduous journey, not necessarily – for the opponents they're facing, they're facing some pretty small opponents, kind of Aruba and Suriname and, and teams like that. And Haiti is not a particularly great opponent, but they couldn't afford to lose. They had to win every game. So I think John Hurden was talking about they were playing from the edge of a cliff where they couldn't afford a mistake to get into the final group. And then once they got into the final group, then it was just the top three made it to Qatar. And then the fourth place team will have to play in the continental playoff for another place in the World Cup. So yeah, it was a complex, convoluted system. But the whole point was, to make it easier for the United States and Mexico to qualify. And I think Canada kind of blew the doors off that and surprised a lot of people in the, in the region by finishing first in that grouping. You talk about the fact that Canada for a long time had a really bad program, but as you mentioned in the eighties, we were, you know, not on top of the world in terms of Canadian soccer, potentially on top of the world, but in terms of global soccer, we at least had a presence. What happened between you know, making it to the quarterfinals in the Olympics in 1984, making it to the World Cup, albeit not scoring a goal or winning a game in 1986, to this lengthy, lengthy drought in terms of international success in the 90s and into the 2000s? Well, I think one of the big reasons was that North American Soccer League folded. And I think that was a big catalyst in Canada having real high-end players at the time, professional players that were playing for 
the Toronto Blizzard and the Vancouver Whitecaps and even the Edmonton Drillers here. You look at that national team in 86, it was made up of players that played for the Drillers and the Whitecaps and the Blizzard and teams across the country. So the NASL was big for a while in the 80s. Like if it was rivaling NFLs in the NFL, especially in New York, in terms of, of the fans they were bringing out. And the problem with that league is that it expanded too fast, too quickly. People thought, oh my God, soccer is going to be the next big thing. And a lot of people were investing in teams and even Peter Pockington invested in a team up here. And it was huge in the 80s. And I think that was real beneficial to Canada and their soccer. And I think that's why you saw basically back then in the in 83, 84, 85, 86, that was kind of a golden generation for Canadian soccer, probably because of the North American Soccer League. Once that league left, it left a big void in Canadian soccer where there was nowhere for Canadian kids to play professionally unless they went to Europe or South America or Mexico or somewhere like that to chase those opportunities. And, and that was hard to do because you had to leave home at a young age. You had to impress at a young age at one of these clubs. And, and then you had to hope that they kind of helped and developed you. And I think that was the big void for a long, long time at Canadian soccer. There was just nowhere to go, nowhere for someone playing college soccer. There was no next step that really hurt the program and hurt the national team program. And also the fact that the United States decided to start pouring money into their program when they got the World Cup in 1994. Suddenly that was kind of a starting point for them to develop their league and go from there. And I think that was the main reason why there was such a big gap and why Canada kind of fell off the soccer map. And they've come back to it because of the leagues like the, the, the MLS and like the Canadian Premier League. And, and now Canadian kids have an opportunity to play professional soccer at home. They don't have to go chasing opportunities in Europe. And it, it's a lot easier path. And then, so I think we're seeing a direct correlation between professional soccer leagues in North America and success of national teams. I know there, that there are Canadians who have made that jump to professional leagues in Europe, but the Alfonso Davies, who I know we'll talk about in a little bit, and the Owen Hargraves are the kind of star level players who have a chance to make an international team are the rare exception as opposed to the rule in Canada, right? So it, it, in a sense, we needed that development league here to be able to bring players along, right? Yeah, you did. And you needed those stages. It's all in stages and those steps. You look at the pathway now that they call it. You look at the pathway now that you can go from the Canadian Premier League to the MLS to a second level team in Europe to a top level team in Europe. That pathway is now set. Before it wasn't, before they were missing that big chunk where it was university soccer and then nothing and then teams in Europe. So I think a lot of players benefited by having some European ancestry and getting an opportunity to go and try and make it an academy team or, or they had to leave Canada at a young age. You had to leave at 14, 15, 16 and hope that you could latch onto some academy in Europe or in South America and, and they would kind of push you through. But now that you don't have to leave home, now the academies are here, they're at home and you have that pathway. But basically you cut out two stages to get to professional soccer. And then it's tough to make that jump from whatever it is, college soccer, high school soccer to that next level. If you're missing those two stages and those stages are there now and they've helped players get to the next level. We'll be right back. So you have that development program in place, essentially with these steps and players able to go through these steps. When did we start to see the men's program turn around? There's been a lot of talk about Canada's women's soccer program and the fact that we had a group that while they may be played 
professionally in other countries, but they played as a team and they developed as a team and they developed into an international powerhouse as a team, culminating with a gold medal win at the Olympics last year. When did Canada's men's program start to show signs that it was turning itself around? It started to show signs, I would say, about four or five years ago. And and what happened was, is that these MLS teams, especially ones in Canada, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, they developed academies and they developed these academies where they could identify talent at a young age, 12, 13, 14 years of age, and bring them into these these soccer academies and, and what they call residential programs is what they call them. And they could bring these players in and then they could develop these players with the hope that one or two or three would eventually move on and develop into professional players for their club. And I think we're starting to see the fruits of those academies now. Those academies started 10 years ago, probably, and they brought young players in. And it's basically, you bring a lot of players in, hoping that a few will work out. And I think we're seeing right now that players that were brought in from the different academies are all kind of coming up at the same time. And we're seeing that. And I think you look at Alfonso Davies, he came through that system as well. He was identified here in Edmonton with the FC Edmonton Academy. And then he quickly went over to Vancouver and he played with the Whitecaps Academy as a young player. And he came up through their system and developed and ended up at Bayern Munich in in Germany. So we're seeing that a lot more. And I think that was kind of the fruits of that labor now of teams having the foresight to say, listen, we can't just have a professional team. We have to invest in the youth. We have to invest in these academies. And that has really, really helped the national team program. And it's helped the Toronto FCs, the Vancouver Whitecaps, Montreal FC. It's helped those teams be more competitive in the MLS, but it's also helped the national team program because they're grabbing Canadian kids and they're putting Canadian kids in these academies as opposed to other teams that are putting American kids in the academies. They're getting these Canadian kids and they're giving them, they're putting them in a professional atmosphere, a professional environment at 13, 14, 15, 16 years of age. It was the way they do it in Europe. Mm-hmm. That's how they develop players in Europe. And, and, and you're seeing that kind of same system being used in Canada now. And, and you're seeing the men's team benefit from it. I don't ask this question necessarily to criticize past leadership of Canada's men's national team, but how much effect or impact did John Herdman moving from our women's program to our men's program have? You know, he had a track record of developing a winning team He had a lot of success internationally, and then he comes into the men's team. How has that helped the development of our program? Oh, it's been massive. And I think John Herdman, and I think you asked the players about John Herdman's impact, both on the men's and women's side. It's been massive. And I think the difference between John Herdman and some of the other coaches that have been here is John Herdman actually really cares about the program. He cares about where the program is going and how it's going. And a lot of times... Canada would bring in coaches. It was just a paycheck for them. They didn't care about the development of Canadian soccer. They just took the team and said, okay, we'll we'll take these 23 players and we'll do what's best for us. We'll do the best that we can. And there was really no investment and no no investment in the program when they brought in these coaches from wherever they were, from Ecuador, from Italy, from Germany, from England. John Herdman came in here and he said, no, I'm going to make an investment in this program, in this team, in soccer in Canada, and I'm going to help turn it around. And he did that with the women's program. And now when he took over the men's program, a lot of people thought, well, you know, it's a little different, the, the men's program and the women's program. And, and basically, one of the things that people thought John Herdman would struggle with, when he took over the women's program, he had some of the best players in the world on that team. He had the Christine St. Clairs. He had players like that that were, they were considered among the best in the world. The men's program, he didn't necessarily have that. So a lot of people thought it'd be tougher. But what he's done is he's been able to take this golden generation of talent, per se, 
developed through the MLS academies. And he's able to kind of mold them all together and really invest in the system and the program. And he wants the program to continue getting better. He doesn't want to just qualify for this World Cup. He wants to be competitive for the next World Cup. And then from then on in, keep going and build the foundation, which was the plan in 86 when they first qualified. But then when the North American Soccer League went defunct, that plan went out the window. So I think the MLS is a bit more stable and hopefully the Canadian Premier League is a bit more stable. So then they continue on this plan. But John Herdman, he's invested in Canadian soccer, not just the Canadian national team. And I think we're seeing that. And now he's not only is he getting players that have developed here in Canada, he's getting players that have that dual citizenship, have that dual passport. And he's convincing them, hey, if you can't play for a Portugal, for example, like Stefan Estacchio, come play for Canada. If you can't play for an England, come play for Canada. If you can't play for the United States, come play for Canada. And these players, when 10 years ago, they're saying there's not a chance I'm going to play for the Canadian national team. Now we're coming to play for Canada and looking at that as an opportunity. And I think that's another big thing that John Herdman has done that no other coach has been able to do. Hasn't been able to convince those dual citizens to come play for the Canadian national team. We've gotten over the hump. We've qualified for the first time in 36 years. Looking ahead to the fall, I think a lot of soccer fans are used to seeing World Cups played in the summer yeah. <laughs> because they're playing in the Middle East where these games will be pushed for November into December, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Canada has drawn a pretty interesting group. Belgium, which is a highly ranked team. We also have Morocco and Croatia. As someone who's followed soccer for a long time, both as a soccer fan as a kid and someone who covers it professionally, what do you figure Canada's chances are to advance out of the group stage, which is kind of the next step, right? We made it. Now let's see if we can get to the elimination rounds. Yeah, that is the next step. and But there is kind of a step before that, I think, because the last time Canada was in the World Cup, they lost all three games and didn't score a goal. So John Hartman <laughs> is taking this a step at a time. The first thing they got to do is score a goal. And so they have Belgium, Croatia, and Morocco in their group. And you look at that on paper, the Croatians, they made their World Cup final four years ago. So they're a really, really strong team. Belgium was ranked number one in the world for a long time, just before the tournament started. Then they were kind of superseded by Brazil. But Belgium have their golden generation of players, and they've done a good job of developing these players. And their window is closing. So this might be the last shot for this Belgium team to kind of win a World Cup. They, they finished third four years ago. This still generation, it's getting a little older, but it's still there. It's still, they still have some of the best players in the world. So when you talk about Canada playing Belgium, you can put Belgium in the same category as you could. Canada's going to play Brazil or Argentina or England or France or one of those teams. So this is a world power. Belgium is a world power. And, and I think it's going to really give Canada a good measuring stick to see where are they in comparisons to a world power. And I think it's good that Canada plays it early, gets it out of the way, and they can see where they are when it comes to where they sit in the world standings, in the world rankings. Now, when you get to Croatia, Croatia, their golden generation made it to the World Cup final four years ago. And they're now on the other end of it. Their best player is 36 years old. Their other top end players are on the other side of 30. So they're on their way down. So they're going to be kind of in a rebuilding process here. They're going to have one last kick at the can here in Qatar. And they hope that they can kind of recreate what happened four years ago. But that was kind of, Lightning in a bottle, they, they, it was magic for them. Their players were amazing, and they made it all the way to the final. So they're a team that's kind of in transition. They still have a lot of star players on their team, but they're a little older. So when they come and face a young Canadian team where Canada's best players are 22, 23, 24, there's a possibility Canada could get a result out of that. They don't necessarily need to beat Croatia, 
But if they get a tie or they get some points off Croatia, then that really sets up that last match against Morocco. And Morocco has been a power in Africa for a long, long time. But it's kind of tough to compare because Africa has really struggled at the World Cup. They, they've really never made it beyond the quarterfinals when Ghana made it to the semifinal in the World Cup in South Africa. But that's going to be a real good comparison to see where where Canada is in, in, in terms of Morocco. And I think when you look at the Canadians and they think we can beat Morocco, and if we get in a situation where a win against Morocco puts us into the next round, there's a quite a possibility that they can move on to the next round. And so it's going to be very interesting. I don't think Canada will go to this World Cup and fail to score a goal and fail to win a game. I think they will make some noise, whether it be against Belgium, against Croatia, against Morocco, I think. There's a lot of optimism going into this tournament. They're not just there to participate, as John Herbin says. They're there to they're do something and kind of set the foundation for four years from now when they're hosts, that four years from now, the goal will be to get out of the group, not just participate in the tournament. A lot of people talk about Alfonso Davies, the most recognizable international player on the Canadian team, especially around these parts in Edmonton where we're recording this. He's a huge star, but it's not just Alfonso Davies team and you know for some of the games in qualifying he hasn't been playing due to some health issues who else should Canadian soccer fans be paying attention to in this World Cup on Team Canada yeah it's going to be interesting because I think during this qualifying process a lot of these names especially for soccer fans kind of became household names outside of Alfonso Davies so you have Alfonso Davies obviously the star of the team he's kind of the face of the program but then you also have Jonathan David who plays in Lille and who's done an unbelievable job in that French league, he won a French league championship with Lille last year, which is difficult to do because the French league is Paris Saint-Germain and everybody else. And mm-hmm. to be able to win that league is a big accomplishment for him. So Jonathan David is a player that a lot of people will start recognizing once the World Cup starts. Tejon Buchanan is a young player that's up and coming. He's only 23 years old. And this is another player that's kind of developed through the academy system and has come up through the MLS. And now He's starting to get a name for himself in Europe. He just recently joined a Belgium team in Club Bruges. So his development will expedite right now. And he's a young, exciting player. And then you have Kyle Laren, who plays in Turkey, in Betishkas. He's become an unbelievable scorer for Canada. He leads the CONCACAF in scoring. He's become a really, really top-end striker. He was playing in the MLS for Orlando for a long time before he decided to make the jump to Europe. So Kyle Aaron is another name that I think people will get familiar with. Stefan Estacchio, we mentioned earlier, he grew up in Portugal, basically. Well, he grew up in Toronto, then moved to Portugal at a young age, developed through the Portuguese system, played for the Portuguese under-20 team. And he's one of those players that realized he wasn't going to get to the top level playing with Portugal at their national team. So John Herman convinced him, come play for Canada. You could be one of the best players in CONCACAF, which he is. He's kind of that midfield general that kind of runs things in midfield. He's really kind of helped Canada change the, the way they play the game, a more attacking style as opposed to more defensive style they were playing before. And then you have Milan Borjan, their goalkeeper. The goalkeeper plays in, in Croatia for Red Star Belgrade, and he's a goalkeeper that wears the Canadian crest on his shirt proudly. He's mentioned it a lot of times. He immigrated to Canada when he was a young kid, gave his family an opportunity that they wouldn't have otherwise. And so He's a guy that kind of really holds things together at the back, and he had a fantastic qualifying round in goal. He was fantastic for Canada. And then there's a couple other names, but lastly, Atiba Hutchinson. And this is a guy, he's 39 years old. He's been around, he's been in the war. So he's been kind of the conduit from the lean years to now. And I think he was convinced to come back to the program. He's still an effective player on the field, but he's kind of like 
he was there. He represented his country thick or thin through those bad times. And I think now he's going to get an opportunity to play at the World Cup. And I think a lot of people are going to be happy for Atiba Hutchison, who's the most capped player in Canadian history. And so those are some names that are going to become household names by the end of this tournament if Canada does succeed and they do well in Qatar. I know there's a lot of excitement around this team now, and I imagine that excitement is just going to build as we head towards the fall. Derek, thanks for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me on. 103 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest Derek Van Deest. More from him at edmontonsun.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.